Well, good evening. Hi there. We better get started tonight. We've got a lot to cover. Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. At this pace, I think we're going to get through Revelation in the year 2000. No, I'm just kidding. Well, we'll make it through. We'll make it through. You know, we'll get through what God wants us to get through. You know? There you go. So, well, let's have a word of prayer and then we'll dive into Revelation chapter 3 tonight. Father, it is good to be here again this week. And Lord, again, I just thank you for the faithfulness of these folks who come out and and want to hear your word and, and just be in your word and be with one another on Tuesday night. And Lord, I know that uh, for many of us, it's been a long day already, but I just pray that you would refresh us and encourage us, Lord, with your word tonight and just uh, draw us closer to you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, the church at Sardis. Uh, let me just say a little word about that. Um, the, the, the church at Sardis was known for its gem. Uh, which is called the Sardius Stone, and it's a red stone. In fact, as we move on into the book of Revelation, we're going to find that the Sardius Stone is uh, one of the descriptions uh, surrounding the throne of God as far as the color and what proceeds out of the throne of God. So it's a very beautiful <coughs> red stone, and that's what uh, sort of the church at Sardis was known for. You'll notice there, to the angel of the church at Sardis, write the following. This is the solemn pronouncement of the one who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds, that you have a reputation that you are alive, but in reality you are dead. Wake up then and strengthen what remains that was about to die, because I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Uh, a couple of things there. First of all, we refer back to the teaching that the seven spirits of God we're referring to the sevenfold Spirit of God, or the Holy Spirit of God in all His fullness. And one of the things that Jesus here then is reminding the church of is this. And again, these are messages to His church. He, he wants to strengthen His church. He wants to purify His church. He wants to make His church a tremendous light bearer where He has placed them. And so in Sardis, He wants this church to be a tremendous light. And one of the ways that they can do that is to allow the fullness of the Holy Spirit to wake them up. Because you'll notice there in the first couple of verses, they were beginning to become spiritually lethargic. They were beginning to become spiritually sort of uh, dead and sort of uh, sleepy, if you will. And in order for them to strengthen the things that were about to die, that he talks about here, they needed the ministry and power and presence of the Holy Spirit. It just reminds us that the Holy Spirit is really sort of the, the power core of the church, if you will. Jesus Christ is the head, all right? But that the Holy Spirit is sort of the power of the, whole, of the, of the church. And we need to be locked into the Holy Spirit in order to, to really become what God wants us to become. And so that's part of what he's talking about there when he refers to the church at Sardis and then says, uh, this message is from the one who holds the seven spirits of God. He's simply reminding them, I'm the one that can solve this. As we've said earlier, he's the answer to any situation that the church has. He's the head of the church. He is the answer to anything that we need. And we just need to look to him and look to his spirit to solve these things within our fellowship that needs strengthening. And that's what he's talking about here in Revelation chapter 3 to the church at Sardis, because you'll notice something very important here. And he is teaching us here in these first couple of verses of Revelation chapter 3 that there is a wide divergence between 
what the church appears to man and the way the church appears to God. There is a wide divergence or discrepancy between the church's reputation and its reality. And I just want to stop here and have us soak that in because that's really important. You'll notice there he says, you have a reputation that you're a live church. He says, but I want to tell you, you're dead as far as I'm concerned. Now think about that. To men, they appeared as if they were alive. Because a lot of times, human beings mistake activity and busyness and ministry and work as a sign of life. And Jesus here is saying, no, no. Again, it has to be spirit-led. It has to be spiritually energized. In other words, what Jesus here is saying is, there's a lot of work in local churches that can be done in the power of the flesh rather than in the power of the Spirit. And who they, they can appear as if they've got their act together to people around them. Wow, that church, man, they're, they're on fire. Man, they're, they're out there doing what God wants them to do. And think about the sobering thing that Jesus says to this church. You have a reputation before men that you are a church that is alive, but I'm telling you, you're dead. Whoa. And it just shows us how we cannot get caught up primarily. Not that we don't care at all, but we cannot primarily take our cue of where we are spiritually as to what other people think about us. It's what God thinks about us. And that's not just true corporately, that's true individually. As someone who's a follower of Christ, that's why Paul said, I really don't pay attention too much to what human beings think about me, the Apostle Paul. He says, I care more about what God thinks of me. Because the people, good or bad, they might have something against me and so they don't like me for some reason and so they might be making some kind of judgment negatively that they shouldn't make or even positively. They might think that Paul's just the greatest thing since sliced bread and they can't see anything that Paul does wrong. And he says, I know who I really am and before God, I got to tell you, there's some things that God knows is going on in my life that I, I need to take some attention with. And so he says, you know, human beings can only see so far. They can, they, that's why human beings... Let's face it, we're not the perfect judge. Because a lot of times, all we base our judgment on is outward appearances. And that's why the Bible says that God doesn't judge based upon outward appearances alone. He judges the heart. And the heart of this church was not right before God. Oh, there was a lot going on. And as far as the world was concerned, man, this was an active, vibrant, lively church that had this reputation that if you, you know, you had the... the uh, you know, the sign out front, you know, oh, we're happening, we're doing everything right. But God is saying, not before me you are. You're about ready to die. And it just goes to show us how important it is that what we do at Cornerstone or any other local church and what we do individually in our lives is being energized and powered by the Holy Spirit rather than by us. You see because if we're doing it in our own strength and in the power of the flesh, it's not going to bring honor and glory to God and it's going to fail ultimately. The only thing that's going to really be of eternal value and lasting value are those things that are Holy Spirit empowered. That's why the Bible over and over again just exhorts us to walk in the Spirit. 
to make it just a daily part of our lives. It's a habit. We are walking in the Spirit. We are being energized by the Spirit. We are being filled with the Spirit. We are being controlled by the Spirit. Just, I can't emphasize that enough. And that's part of what he's saying here. So you'll notice then, he goes on, and I'm going to stop here just a minute. He says to them then in verse 2, so wake up. In other words, again, they are spiritually asleep. Why? Because they are not allowing the Holy Spirit to really energize what they are doing, they are also becoming uh, spiritually dull in their senses. And they're not seeing things from God's perspective, they're seeing things from man's perspective. You see, the only way that you and I can see things from God's perspective is when we allow the Spirit of God to take the Word of God, and then we see it through God's lens. We see things differently. When we begin to see things just through our own eyes, and we are taking the Spirit of God out of the picture, and we are taking the Word of God out, all we're doing is seeing things through our eyes. And that's what was happening here. That's why they thought they were doing everything okay, and they had a great reputation in the community. They were doing everything okay, and God's saying, no, you're not. You're, you're about ready to die. You know, because the reality of where they are spiritually is in no way close to what their reputation was. And let's face it, one of the things that this challenges me with is that I need to make sure, you know, all of us have a reputation, good or bad. God's not as interested in our reputation before others as he is the reality of what's really in here. That's what we need to be striving for, to be real, to be transparent. It sort of goes back to that, don't be a hypocrite. Uh, the word hypocrite was a word that the Greeks used, and it literally means to wear a mask. Because it went back to the Greeks who, when they would put on plays, they would, instead of, you know, actually, they would just take these, like, sticks that had masks on them, and they would, they would wear a mask, and they would put a mask of a certain character in front of their face, and they would portray that character. And then when they would switch characters in the Greek theater, they would put another mask on, or they would hold that mask up in front of them. And literally what it means is, don't be wearing a mask. Be real. So, in other words... What Jeff Royce is in front of folks at Cornerstone better be the same Jeff Royce that is interacting with people out there in the community in Chandler who don't even know who he is. I need to be consistent. And I better be the same Jeff Royce at home with my wife and my children that I am in front of you all on Tuesday night. In other words, there needs to be a consistency there. I, I, I better not get to the point in my life where I'm just wearing a mask. I'm just playing a game. I'm just being a pretender, and there's no reality there. Uh, Jude, Judas, as we say, was probably one of the most well-known pretenders, one of the 12 disciples who pretended to follow Christ, and who followed Christ, but who truly did not possess a living relationship. And it goes to show us how, again, just like we tell people, even here at Cornerstone, I don't care whether you attend church, read your Bible, whatever, that, that doesn't make you uh, a Christian, that doesn't make you a follower of Christ, that doesn't mean you're going to have this vibrant life. You know, it's not just about all these things, that we, it's about the reality of the life of Christ living within us and then energizing us by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's why the Bible will say things like, they have the outward appearance uh, of knowing Christ, but inwardly, there's no reality there. Or as Paul would say, 
They have a form of godliness, but they deny the power. And we've talked about that in our study of Revelation, where the Bible even teaches us that Satan can appear as a minister of righteousness, and his followers can appear as ministers of righteousness. But it's what the reality is. And that's where it goes back. We could talk about, we could spend a whole night tonight just talking about discernment and all of that, and where that comes from and what that looks like. But I just think this is really important here. Jesus is saying we've got to be real. We've got to be transparent. We've got to be consistent. We've got to be spirit-energized so that we're not just looking at what our reputation is, but what the reality is. I, I think that's one of the most powerful messages that Jesus gives to any church in the book of Revelation is this verse in verse 1. I know your deeds, that you have a reputation that you are alive, but in reality you are dead. That's pretty powerful. And that just reminds us we've got to be real. We have got to be real. And the only way we can wake up and begin to see things from God's perspective is to begin to allow the Holy Spirit to give us that perspective through His ministry and through the Word of God. Now, to illustrate that, and then I'm going to stop for a moment in case any of you have any comments or questions. Go back with, keep your finger there in Revelation 3. And go back to a very important passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 that sort of supports this principle. That we need the Spirit of God to desperately get the perspective of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning at verse 11 is where I'll begin tonight. We could have backed it up a little bit further, but I'd like to just for the sake of time tonight, just begin in verse 11. Paul here is making just a great argument for the importance of the Spirit of God being able to give us the perspective of God. And he says, For who among men knows the things of a man except the man's spirit within him? In other words, what he's simply saying is, we know what it's like to be a human being because we're a human being. I look at my dog, and as much as I want to try to understand my dog, I can't understand my dog. That's why my dog does this. Because I don't have the spirit of a dog. I have the spirit of a human being. And what Paul is simply saying is, you need the spirit of whoever you're trying to understand to understand. Now, we could even go a step further and say that as much as we try, we men can't understand you ladies at all. But you know what, flip side, I know you ladies are saying, yeah, we've tried to understand you men, and we can't understand you guys at all, you know. So let's go a step further than even the human being, but hang in there with me. Okay, so then anyway, so he's saying, so two, no one, end of verse 11, key, 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 no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. Whoa. So if I want to know the things of God, guess who I need? I need the Spirit of God to help me to understand the things of God. Now let's move on. Now, we then have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things that are freely given to us by God. And that's really talking about the Bible right here in our hands tonight. The spirit is going to help you and I understand the Bible. As we rely upon his ministry in our lives, he's going to help us to understand the Bible. Now, let me take this a step further. That doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit doesn't at times use pastors, teachers, to also enhance our understanding of the Word of God. But again, it's the Holy Spirit who's doing it. It's not me. It's the Holy Spirit. Okay, I'm just sort of the instrument 
okay, if you will. Ultimately, it's the Spirit. Verse 13, And we speak about these things not with words taught us by human wisdom, and that's my goal all the time. If I'm teaching the Word of God, it's not that I'm trying to get up here and teach anybody in, in the wisdom of man. That ain't going to mean a thing. But with those things that are taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual things to spiritual people. Because spiritual people who have the Holy Spirit will be able to understand spiritual things. But now notice this. The unbeliever, verse 14, does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Please understand that what that verse is saying is a person without Christ, therefore they do not have the Holy Spirit residing in them, cannot understand this book at all. That's why when someone, you know, if they don't have Christ in their life and they don't have the Holy Spirit... They could read the Bible all they want to. They're not going to understand it. It ain't going to make any sense to them because the first step they've got to take is that step to Christ. And the Holy Spirit is going to work with them to bring them to that point so that they acknowledge that they need Christ as their Savior. And then once they acknowledge that and that illuminates in their mind and that light bulb comes on, then the Holy Spirit comes in then as they begin to read and study the Bible with the aid of the Holy Spirit, then some of this stuff that didn't make sense before they were a Christian will begin to make sense after they became a Christian. But that's why like, I won't spend a lot of time on somebody who I know doesn't know Christ, and they even say, I don't know Christ, and I'm going to try to explain the Bible to them. They're not going to be able to understand the Bible because they're trying to understand spiritual things without the Holy Spirit. And that's going to be as futile as me trying to understand the spirit of a dog without having the spirit of the dog. It doesn't work that way. So they first got to get the Holy Spirit. And that's why then we need to concentrate if we are a believer in Christ and we want them to understand the Bible, then we just have to keep praying for their salvation and keep witnessing to them and keep you know, praying for them and keep trying to bring that about because until they accept Christ and get the Holy Spirit, they're not going to be able to understand the Bible because it's spiritually discerned and the aid is the Holy Spirit. Yes? Okay, I understand that concept, but you've heard of people who are not believers. They've picked up the Bible. They begin to read the Bible, and as they're reading it, something happens where by the time they finish reading it, they've come to an understanding and they now have this belief that Christ lives. I mean, exactly. So at what point is the Holy Spirit, I mean, is the Holy Spirit coming upon them as they're reading? Are the words bringing about the Holy Spirit? How does that work? Yeah, I think that's, and that's a great question and yeah, a great comment. I, I believe that the Bible teaches in what I call the pre-salvational work of the Holy Spirit in someone's life. The Bible, Jesus clearly taught that the Holy Spirit will be working on every soul who doesn't know Christ as their Savior to try to bring that about. Now again, he won't crush our free will. He won't violate our free will. But yeah, the Holy Spirit is doing all the urging and prompting and positioning and everything he can to try to draw that person to Christ. So that, like you said, in an example of someone who doesn't know Christ yet and doesn't have the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit will supernaturally open up that 
mind and illuminate that mind to the words of God in order for them to come to an understanding of Christ, just like he did in my life or any of our lives that we came to Christ, because we didn't have the Holy Spirit yet, but the Holy Spirit, the Bible says, illuminated us enough to where we could step through that door of faith and accept Christ as our Savior. Yeah, and get saved. So there is the pre-salvational work of the Holy Spirit in everybody's life. That's what brought us to Christ, because obviously the Bible teaches the Holy Spirit was working on us before we ever came to make that decision for Christ. But again, what I'm trying to say here is that we also have to recognize that the person who doesn't know Christ yet cannot understand this book the way a believer could understand this book, because the believer, according to 1 Corinthians 2, has the Spirit of God to aid us and help us in understanding this. The unbeliever doesn't. The unbeliever doesn't. Okay, And that's why we've got to start with salvation. And then we work from there on out. All right. Back to Revelation chapter 3. Good stuff. Therefore, verse 3, remember what you received then and heard, and obey it, and repent. Because if you do not wake up, and of course he started with waking up in verse 2 as well. Because you see, this, these words do not just mean to, to, it means to remain awake. It was literally a military word or concept that was used for soldiers back then to be awake constantly in the midst of a spiritual encampment where the rest of the people in the, spiritual en- or the uh, military encampment were asleep, and they needed to remain awake or else the enemy was going to come. And it it was also a term that was used again for that discernment, that that in order to be awake, there's also that tie-in with it. It, It's talking about spiritual discernment. That as long as I am awake spiritually, and again, being energized by the Holy Spirit and allowing the Holy Spirit to teach me and show me things and whatever, I'm going to remain spiritually alive, and I'm going to remain spiritually awake. But when I begin to not allow the Holy Spirit to continue to show me things and being sensitive to Him or whatever, then I'm going to become, over time, spiritually dull, and I may, in a sense, fall asleep spiritually to the point, like this church, where they didn't even recognize that they were asleep. They didn't even know that there was anything wrong. And that's where the danger comes in. That's why I tell people, here's the encouragement. You think this is, it is, it's encouraging. The closer we get to Christ, the more sensitive we become about the things in our life that shouldn't be there or the things in our life that should be there. That's a good thing. I can remember talking to someone, well, lots of people, but over the years as a pastor who, like, they'll they'll accept Christ as their Savior and they'll come back like a week or two later and they'll like, Pastor Jeff, I I just, I don't think I'm saved or or whatever. I I just, I feel awful and and I start to talk to them and and start to draw things out of it. I said, well, you know, I just, I'm, I'm seeing this in my life, and I'm seeing this in my life, and I'm, and I'm like, yeah, don't you realize? That's an evidence that you really are a Christian now. Because the things that you weren't sensitive to before you came to Christ, because of the Spirit of God working in your life, and because you're allowing, in a sense, the, the flashlight of God's Word to now come upon your life, you're now seeing things, and you're being sensitive to things, and you're being sensitized to things, that you weren't sensitive to before. And, and you're being aware of that. It's like I tell people, the closer I get to Christ, the more I realize how far I am from Christ. But that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. The danger comes in with like these people who had lost all sensitivity. They were like the person who you know gets burned or something, and that burn causes their skin to become sort of calloused. 
and they don't feel anything anymore. And the Bible compares that to a person's heart and says, do you realize that if we listen to the word of God and we listen to the voice of God in our life and we don't respond to it and apply those things to our life, that our heart can begin to come hard and, and we can begin to, in a sense, develop a callus over our heart so that it's not feeling anymore, so that God can't move us anymore. The person who's in a good place spiritually is the person who always remains sensitive to the voice of God, who always remains sensitive to the Word of God. Now, again, the flip side of that is that means that, yeah, a lot of times you're going to say, oh, my goodness, but there's this in my life. Yeah, I understand that, but you've got to understand that the closer you and I get to a holy God, the more those things are going to show up. That's a good thing. I know that sounds sort of paradoxical, but in reality, that's what the Bible teaches. And so this church had just gotten way off base. They didn't think there was anything wrong. They were no longer sensitive to where they really were spiritually. They were dead as far as Christ was concerned, yet they thought everything was okay. That's the most dangerous place to be. That is what I call a self-deceived individual or church. Somebody who thinks everything's okay when everything's not okay. And we could probably all uh, give examples or name people in our lives who we've known who've been like that who we looked at their life and we thought their life was a total disaster or headed for a train wreck, and they didn't see it. They, they had no clue, you know, about what train they were, track they were about ready to fall off of. And, and you and I are thinking, it's so clear, how comes you can't see it? And the reason they can't see it is because they don't have God's perspective. And the reason they don't have God's perspective is because either they don't have the Spirit of God in their life, or they're shutting off the ministry of the Holy Spirit in their life, and they don't have God's perspective on things. We've got to keep God's perspective on things, and how we do that is to allow the Holy Spirit to continually minister to us and to illuminate us to what God's Word says, and that's how we keep God's perspective on things rather than getting off on our perspective. Now, I'm going to just stop there for a second. Yeah, good quick, place to break. Quick question. Yes. So when Jesus is asking them to repent, he's asking them to repent of falling asleep to the Spirit? Yes. Okay. Yeah. And going back to the things that they did at the beginning where they were spiritually sensitive and where they were allowing the Spirit to energize their ministry rather than... And, and let's face it, this is one of the struggles for mature believers. You know, we always talk about being, you know, maybe a, a, an infant Christian or a, a baby Christian or whatever and wanting to grow, and that's our goal, but... There's some pitfalls of being what we call a growing, mature Christian after a while. And that is that you get to a point where you've done something so long that you begin to rely on your own ability or your own talent, if you will, or your own intellect or whatever, rather than totally relying on the Spirit. And just for me as an example, I've been, been preaching now since I was 12. Uh, I'm 44 now, so what, 22, 32, 40. So 32 years I've been preaching. Now, after 32 years of doing something like it would be for any of us, it would be real easy for me to be able to go, get up and just sort of do it because you sort of have done something so long, you feel like you can do it without... But see, that's, oh, that's, that's where the pitfall is. Right. Because you and I, no matter how far we go in our walk with God, and no matter how long we've done something, it always needs to be spirit-energized. It always needs to be God doing it, not me. Because the second I start to do it, I'm going to fall flat on my face. I've got to, no matter how long I speak, 
No matter how long I do anything, and no matter how long you and I do anything for the Lord, we can't fall into that pitfall that, like these people probably did, that eh, we've done that for years and we can do that, without really getting on their knees and saying, God, help me with this. I need you. I need your power. I need your strength. I'm trying to do this in my own strength and in my own power. And that's a, that's a danger of the ones who have moved on in their faith, is that we begin to rely on just the practice of doing something over and over again without really relying on the Spirit to do it for us. Wow. I know each message is supposed to be unique in the lesson that it teaches. How does this differ from the first church, Ephesus, where... Basically, let me say the same thing. You lost your first love. So how is this message like different from the first church? Well, I think just little nuances. Yeah, not a lot. And that's why the message to us is, is the same and relevant and practical <laughs> for us and applicable to us today. Certainly, there, I think he's just saying that in Ephesus, their thing was they had all the doctrine right. They had all the truth down, but there wasn't a lot of love there to, to wrap up the truth. So that as they would approach people in Ephesus about the truth, they were turning people off because of their lack of love. They were, they were you know, the Bible says we need a balance of speaking the truth, but always doing it in love. And having that balance of truth and love. Sort of just like... You know, for instance, and I'm just using this as an example, you know, somebody may have had a rough week or whatever, and they haven't got a lot of sleep or whatever, and let's just face it, they look bad, okay? <laughs> now, the truth would be, you go up to somebody, they, man, you look awful. That's the truth, okay? But love is going to say, you know what? Don't say anything. Keep that to yourself. Or go up and say, hey, being sensitive to that, Maybe there's a reason why they look so bad. Hey, can I pray for you for something or whatever? So, again, there's that, there's that balance where love and truth are supposed to be sort of married together, and that's what Ephesus was missing. This church, though in some ways similar, this church was doing a lot of activity, but they were doing it in the power of the flesh, and they were relying on their own perspective and on the perspective of the the culture and the community in Sardis to say, yeah, we're pretty wonderful, aren't we? When God's up there saying, oh, you're missing the boat, don't you get it? So yeah, there are some similarities there, but there's also some, some sort of little nuanced differences too. Yeah. Yes? Jeff, you've done it again. While teaching us one thing, you've answered another question. <laughs> Completely unrelated. That's uh, God. I've been talking to a non-believer once, and the issue came up of white lies. You know, when, when somebody tried really hard to do well, you wanted to be encouraging, it wasn't really good, but you told them it was really good anyway to encourage them. And the non-believer then turns to me and says, well, but that's not the truth. So as a Christian, how can you say that out of love, even though it's not mm -hmm. true? And then we get into that conversation of white lie. You know, you do it to help somebody out of love, but it's still a lie. Right. And so <laughs> you do. You have to sort of be careful how you answer people. That's yeah. why the Bible says that we need the wisdom of God sometimes to know how to respond to people. For instance, like I'll just give you a personal example. There was this uh, dear person at uh, our church back in Maryland that I pastored, and um, uh, let's just say. 
the worst baker in the whole world. <laughs> but always was baking things for us, and, and, and I, oh boy, I, what do you say? So, so I came up with this. I came up and I said, you know what? Those things don't last long around our house. <laughs> and uh, you know, we would throw it away. We wouldn't eat it. And, but it didn't last long around our house. No. Right. But you do. You you have to really. You, you have. I know that was bad. That was bad. No, that's a good example. You have to. You have to. You have to use wisdom. You know. Yes. We, we again going back to being real and being transparent. God. God wants us to be truthful. But at the same time, we have to have the wisdom of God to know how do we balance that and embrace that with love. and how we're Because the Bible teaches us very clearly in Ephesians, let no corrupt communication proceed out of our mouth, but only that which edifies or builds somebody up. So if I'm saying something that's tearing somebody down rather than building them up, I'm already violating the principle of Scripture. And so it goes back to sort of, it's not a scriptural principle, or it's, it's not a scriptural verse, but it's a principle probably born out of that where your mom or your dad told you when you were growing up, if you don't have something nice to say about somebody, don't say anything at all. Well, that's not, there's not a verse in the Bible for that, but that is sort of born out of that verse that says, okay, if you can't say something that builds somebody up, then maybe it is better not to say anything at all. Yeah, which is a good point. Yeah. So then he goes on and says, look, guys, I'm going to come and remove your lampstand, your light-bearing capacity, because you think you're awake and you're really asleep. Now, I want to point this out. Notice, he says in verse 4 something very important. He never lumps the faithful in with those in error. He always makes a distinction, and I think that's encouraging. You know, he doesn't lump us all together. You know, not like human beings sometimes. Something goes bad, and we just all sort of generalize things. We, we're, we're great at stereotyping. So, you know, if you have a bad experience, say, at one church, like some people have, mm-hmm. then some people say, oh, church is just, yeah, that way. And they label all churches that way because they had a bad experience at one church. Well, that's no different than if I go to Applebee's or some restaurant or something, and I get a bad meal at that one, then I'm going to go out and say, Every Applebee's in America is just terrible. It's just terrible. Well, no, that's not true. We're generalizing, and and we do that a lot, and we stereotype and all of that. Jesus never does that, because he he says in verse 4, but you have a few individuals in Sardis who have not stained their clothes. In other words, not everybody is spiritually dull, spiritually sleeping. And you also notice something here, how he ties the entrance of sin, the staining of our clothes, in with being spiritually dull. You see, it goes hand in hand. That's why I've said all along that that what we believe does determine the way we live. And what Jesus here is simply tying together is this. If I'm allowing sin to enter into my life and to get a foothold, it's going to produce a spiritual dullness in my life. I'm not going to have the discernment that I should have. I'm not going to have the perspective that I should have if I'm allowing this this sin in my life to just take a hold of my life and just totally rule my life. Now again, I'm going to point this out. That doesn't mean we're going to be sinless, but it does mean that we can strive to be blameless and we can strive to not allow any sin or a sin to take over our life and to rule our life 
and to keep us from that spiritual discernment and that spiritual perspective that, that a purity and a pure walk with God can give us. And that's why he says, there's a few of you there who have not stained your clothes. And the reason he uses that is it ties back in with when Jesus washed the disciples' feet. If you remember that story from the Gospels, he's getting up, he's washing the disciples' feet, he comes to Peter, Peter argues with him, God, I don't want you to wash my feet, you're God, you don't need to be washing feet. And Jesus says, if you don't allow me to wash your feet, you have no part with me. And then Peter's response is, well, then God, wash me all over. You remember what Jesus said? He said, once you are initially cleansed, You don't need to be washed all over. You just need your feet washed every once in a while. And that's a beautiful picture of the Christian life. What Jesus here is simply teaching is this. Once I accept Christ as my Savior, the initial cleansing of sin, I don't need to go back and have that whole initial cleansing of sin over again. But as I walk through this world, I am going to get my feet dirty. I am going to need my feet washed every once in a while to be cleansed if nothing else, from just walking in this sinful world and knowing that I'm going to be contaminated every once in a while and I'm going to succumb to those temptations every once in a while. That doesn't mean I need to go back and be initially bathed in the blood of Jesus Christ. But I do need to have my feet washed. And that's why Jesus responded the way he did to Peter. And That ties in then. Keep, keep, Keep with me now. Now we're moving into 1 John. Where it says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, hang in there with me, and I'm going to open it up for questions, comments, and snide remarks in just a minute. (laughs) Hang in there with me, because this is a concept that some people have really struggled with. The Bible clearly teaches that when I accept Christ as my Savior, my sins are forgiven past, present, and future. Okay then, what's it mean in 1 John when it says, if I confess my sins, then, it almost sounds like it's a conditional thing. If I don't confess, then he doesn't forgive. And if he doesn't forgive, guess what that means? I'm not going to heaven. So how do we, how do we put that all together? Here's how. Hang in there, we're going to get to this. It's going, to make all, it's going to make sense. If it makes sense to me, it'll make sense to you. Trust me. <laughs> First of all, we have to recognize this. As a human being who's fallen, even though I still have the Spirit of God with me, I still have the fallen nature, I'm not even going to recognize every time I sin. I'm not even going to know every time I fall short of what God's perfection is. So if God is saying in that verse, which he's not, but if God would be saying that every time you sin, you've got to confess it or else I'm not going to forgive it, none of us would ever be able to confess everything because we're going to let some sins slip by just because we didn't even realize we did anything wrong in God's sight, just like this church didn't even realize they were missing the mark. And that's going to be true of us because we're fallen human beings. So obviously the verse is not teaching that somehow I've got to confess every sin because we're not even going to be able to recognize every sin we commit. And that's where it gets into the, you've got to be careful because if you believe that your salvation and keeping your salvation is tied with confessing every sin, man, you're, you're putting a lot of pressure on yourself. A lot of pressure on yourself. 
you and I will never be able to confess every sin. We'll, we'll never acknowledge every sin. So then, what is 1 John 1, 9 teaching? Well, first of all, it's unfortunate in some of the words that they chose for other words in the English language that would have been better. Not the Greek language, the original language, but some of the English words. Because what that verse is simply teaching is this. I just have to acknowledge before God that I am a sinful person and that I do sin. In other words, it's just simply saying we have to acknowledge before God that we're, we're sinful and that we're going to fail at times. And God is going to cleanse us from the times that we fail. Okay? That's why in the context, you'll notice there if you study 1 John, that that preceding verse says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. Because there are some people that teach that once you accept Christ as your Savior, you can get to a point where you're absolutely perfect and you never sin anymore. There are people that teach that. Who's that? I know, I would like to, yeah, I'd like to know how you do that. But the Bible says that's not going to be the case, no matter how far we mature in Christ. And we looked at that last semester in the book of Philippians, where even the Apostle Paul says, I haven't arrived yet, guys. I'm continuing to strive towards that mark. None of us will ever be sinlessly perfect. It's just a matter of acknowledging, though, before God that I am not perfect, that I do need your cleansing, God. Please cleanse me of those times that I... Because, again, it's not a matter of relationship, it's a matter of fellowship. When I was born into the Royce family, and I became the son of Bob and Shirley Royce, that relationship is there, and there's nothing that I can do to do that. When I'm born again into God's family, I am born into His family, and nothing is going to take that relationship away. But, the Bible does teach very clearly that my sin can definitely destroy the fellowship between me and my Heavenly Father. Not the relationship. And that's it, really, that's what the story even of the prodigal son illustrates for us. The father never stopped loving the son. Even though he was sinful. Even though he was wasting his life and all debauchery and everything. The father never stopped loving the son. And when the son turned around and repented, guess what? The father was there to welcome him back and kill the fatted calf and have a party. And my son's returned. Because the whole point of that parable is this. The relationship was always there. It was the fellowship that was destroyed. There was no fellowship between the prodigal who left his father's household and went to live in sin. But there was always the relationship there. The relationship was always there. And so that's an important point. And that's why he uses these words very carefully, stained our clothes. You've, you've not stained your... In other words, again, going back to that part of Initial cleansing in Christ means that my sins past, present, and future are forgiven, period. Period. If, if there was a point in my salvation where God threw up some kind of sin, past, present, or future to me, after I became a Christian, that totally contradicts everything the Bible says about the efficacy or effectiveness, if you will, of Christ's sacrifice. The Bible clearly teaches that Christ, when he died on the cross, died for all of my sins, past, present, and future. And that once I for ask his forgiveness, that forgiveness blankets all sins, past, present, and future. If it did not, then the question I would ask is, where in the Bible does it teach 
how many sins do I have to commit before I lose that salvation? Or what kind of sins do I have to commit before I lose that salvation? Before His grace and His blood didn't cover that when I accepted Christ. And again, I'm not being smart. I just I don't find those verses in the Bible. I find that when I accepted Christ, His covering for me was absolutely complete, past, present, and future. Period. But, again, that doesn't mean I don't sin. But that doesn't mean that Jesus has to come back down to earth and go to the cross and die again. The writer of Hebrews says he did that once, and that's all he'll ever do it. It's not that Jesus has to be re-crucified again. It's simply that I have to have my feet washed every once in a while. My feet, through walking through this world and still having the sin nature, is going to be stained every once in a while, and I've got to allow Jesus to cleanse me. And how am I cleansed? That would be a good extra question. Bible. And a pedicure. <laughs> pedicure. There you go. There you go. Pedicure a spiritual Bible. pedicure. Yeah. If you read like Psalm 119 and you read the Psalms of David, you will find many instances where he refers to the reading and studying and meditating on God's word as a cleansing agent. That the word of God cleanses us. In fact, he says, thy word have I hidden my heart that I might not sin against you. It is, it is a, a purifying agent. It is a cleansing agent. And so one of the, the ways that we keep clean and we stay clean and we, you know, is, is through the word. That's why Jesus says, by the washing of the water of the word, we can remain clean. The word of God is what continually cleanses us as we walk through this world and as we're tainted with sin and stained with sin. All right, I, I want to end with that. I don't want to belabor that point. Which then goes on, though, to the next point about this. To me, one of the greatest blessings about being in heaven is that personal time with God. And notice here his promise to these people who have not stained their clothes. They will walk with me. Wow. Don't don't just read over that without just realizing Jesus is saying going to walk with those people in glory. I'm going to walk with them. Do you realize if you know Jesus Christ is your Savior, He's going to walk with you in glory. Now again, I don't know how all that's going to work out. Is He going to give us all an individual walk for eternity or something or, or whatever? But I just think it's so neat to know that Jesus is going to give us personal attention in eternity, even though there's millions of us going to be up there in heaven that there's going to be that personal touch and that he's going to walk with us and give us some undivided attention. And I just, I just think that's so cool and something that we can look forward to. And, of course, here's where we get the concept of the white robes, okay? Because it says, they will walk with me dressed in white. For those of us that don't look good in white, I don't know. You know maybe those glorified bodies will help. You know, I don't know. But uh, that's where the white comes in. Now, I will say this. And we'll talk about this a little bit more. The Bible says we're dressed in white, but the Bible never says that we're going to have wings like angels. Okay? That, that's something that came through something else. That's not in the Bible. Okay, sorry. We don't have wings. That doesn't mean that we can't sort of be transported all over. You know, Jesus in his glorified body could zip here and go through walls and zip there. And the Bible says, he said, you're going to have a glorified body like my glorified body. So see, the cool thing is, 
Like if I'm on Jupiter hanging out, then I can just zip over to Saturn and, and I can go all over the universe in my glorified body and I can go from the New Jerusalem over here. I don't need wings because it's sort of like the Star Trek principle. I just get sort of the transporter and I'm over somewhere else. That's the way it is, okay? Uh, because those glorified bodies, again, you know, we, we look at things through the, the human perspective. And God is saying you don't need wings to fly places. In fact, that'll take you too long anyway. You can just, I think, when we get to glory, and when this whole universe is open before us, and God creates this new heaven and this new earth, we'll be, we'll be able to just train, you know. Because that's what people amaze me sometimes. They say, well, Jeff, what are we going to do for all of eternity? That's a long time. I'm like, don't you realize we're going to be able to explore and we're going to still learn. And there's so many people we would probably want to talk to and fellowship with. And Jesus wants to walk with us. And I don't know about you, but I'm not looking at that as going to be, you know, because I think it's going to get boring after a while. I'm like, are you kidding me? You know, not to me. I just think it's going to be a great eternity of, of not only exploring the person of God, but exploring this new heaven and this new earth and just so many wonderful things. So we'll stop. There. And then he goes on in verse 5, because I want to wrap up the church at Sardis here in just a minute. The one who conquers will be dressed like them in white clothing, and I will never erase his name from the book of life, but will declare his name before my Father and before his angels. The one who has an ear had better hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, again, I just want to point this out. That my take on verse 5 about never erase is that I believe that that's actually a reassurance to these people. Because remember, as I shared earlier, in this culture, when a person died, their name was erased off of the city roll. When a person was convicted of a crime, their name was erased off of the city roll. And so what Jesus here is saying to these people who we're used to seeing people's names wiped off, wiped off the registry of a city. He's saying, I'm not going to do that to you. You don't have to worry about having your name erased off of the book of life. I will not do that. Though you see that happening in your day, when you see people's names wiped off, I'm not going to do that. Now again, I will tell you, there's certainly good people who have a different interpretation of that. I'm just sharing with you that's that's mine tonight. All right. Before we move on, yes, sir. Well, that's that's reassuring for the people that he said are the exception to the church. Right. He doesn't talk about the people that he has the, the message for. Right? They're right. burning in hell. Right. So are are they okay? So once saved, never removed from the book of life. Right. So does it depend on? whether these people were just people that were in the church were never really saved doing works, but yet, you know, since they've never received salvation, does that mean that they... Well, and that's... The people that, yeah. I mean, were saved and then they, they had a lot of time. Well, and again, there's differences of opinion and interpretation. My take on this, and this is why it gets confusing, and I think I've shared this before, you could really boil it down to four different groups of people. You have the people who know Christ, and they're living for Christ. So there's not too much doubt there. You, you can tell. They're fruit and, and everything. Then the next group of people is, you've got those people who know Christ, but they're called in the Bible carnal or worldly, and that they have allowed sin to get a hold in their life. And if you look at their life again, just strictly from the outside, they're going to look a lot of times like somebody who doesn't even know Christ. Then the third group would be those who profess to know Christ, which the Bible talks about them, but who truly don't know Christ. They profess they know me, Jesus said, but in works they deny me. 
But those two groups look a lot alike sometimes. The, the people who claim to know God but really don't have God, and the people who do know God but aren't living for God. Then you've got the fourth group down here who don't know God and don't pretend to know God and don't want to know God, and they make no bones about it. So the two extreme groups we don't have much of a trouble with. Where the confusion comes in with all of us is when you look at somebody's life, just again, from the outward appearance, because we can't look at the heart like God can. We have sometimes that confusion between the person who truly knows Christ, but over a period of time, they have become spiritually sleepy and dull, and they've allowed sin to creep into their life, and they look more like, in some respects, a person who doesn't know Christ than a person who does. Between them and the person who says, yeah, I know God, but never really has made a commitment to Christ, and obviously then because they don't have the Spirit of God and they're not being energized, they can't live for God either. They're, those lines are blurred. And that's where confusion comes in. And that's why you have people who have even differences of opinion sometimes, to me, on even the whole what we call once saved, always saved scenario. Because, see, my take on that would be this. If a person, a person can say that they're a Christian... But we, are, we have to also recognize that the Bible clearly teaches that there are many people who will profess to be followers of God, but who aren't. Could that not be the people who maybe for a time, according to like parables of the soils, where the Bible says the seed looked like it was doing something for a while and then eventually it got choked out, could that not be an example of someone who maybe started to look like they lived a life for God? Like a Judas, a pretender, someone who followed along with Christ and the people of Christ and entered into all that stuff, but never really knew Christ. Couldn't that be part of the equation? Where they really were never saved to begin with, but they started out looking like they were, and then they fell away? Now, other folks would say, no, I believe that they were probably saved, and they just at some point lost their salvation. And again... Good people believe that. I'm, not, I'm just saying, my whole perspective is, could we also not say, though, because the Bible clearly teaches that there are people who will always profess to know God, but truly do not possess Him, that there comes a point where they can sort of pretend for a little while, but then the reality is going to come about. And let me just take you to a passage that really brings this about. Go back to the Gospel of Matthew. This is probably one of the most sobering passages of Scripture in all the Bible. Matthew chapter 7. I, I preached on this passage many, many times, and it's just one that I think we need to be aware of. In Matthew 7, 21, 22, and 23, this passage clearly teaches that there are those who, again, going back to that self-deception, they are self-deceived. It is the most dangerous place to be with God. You see, the person who believes that they're an awful sinner and whatever, you know what, they're, they're not in a bad position because they know they, know they need a Savior and they, and, and they may come to a point where it's like, I, I need God because I know I need God. The danger people are the people who think they're okay, who think there's nothing wrong, but there's something very wrong. And that's why Jesus here says in Matthew 7, 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. Okay? They profess that they know the Lord. 
But obviously, Jesus is clearly saying they're never going to enter into the kingdom. Now, look, only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven, because again, the Bible clearly teaches that if I truly know Christ as my Savior, there's going to be an accompanying obedience into that. Now, again, the level of that may change over the years. And so that's where, again, we've got to be careful with that. But the Bible does clearly teach that if I have God in my life, God's going to make a difference in my life. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are going to be passing away. All things are going to be becoming new. I don't know, biblically, how anybody can say, God invaded my life and you'll never be able to tell it. That's not biblical. That's not biblical salvation. Biblical salvation is, if God has invaded somebody's life, there's going to be some kind of evidence there at some point. So that's why he uses the the phrase, you've done the will of my Father. It's not that works or being obedient gets us to heaven, but like James teaches in the book of James, our obedience is simply evidence that we are saved. Okay. Now let's go on though. On that day, notice what Jesus says, not a few, many, and that word many in the original language is a lot, a lot. Many are going to say in the day of judgment, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Do you know what that means? That means preach. Did we not preach in your pulpits, Lord? Did, Did we not teach the word of God? That's what the word prophesy means. Did we not preach in your name? Or how about this? And in your name cast out demons? Remember, there's another power in the universe that can do that besides just God. Again, going back to how the Antichrist is going to ascend. You see, there's another power. And so we've got to beware of that and use that discernment. So here are these people standing before God on the day of judgment and say, we've preached in your name, we've cast out demons in your name, and then here's the kicker. And we've done many wonderful deeds. We've done a lot of good works, Lord. Doesn't that count for something? And here's what Jesus says. Then I will declare to them. This, this to me, is one of the most sobering verses in all the Bible. I never knew you. In other words, how we would paraphrase that or translate it, I never had a personal relationship with you. You faked it. You were a pretender. You were somebody who professed to know me. You were religious. You did good things that appeared like you had a reputation that you were really God on God's team. You cast out demons. You preached in my name. For all practical purposes, you looked like the real deal. And you even began to think that you were the real deal. Or else, why would these people be so surprised when they get to heaven? You see, as far as I'm concerned, folks, the greatest, in a sense, and this might not be the best word, but I haven't thought about it very much, so just hang on. I apologize for using this word. The greatest shock, if you will, in heaven, to me, is not going to be those people that I didn't think was going to be there who are there. It's going to be those people who I thought was going to be there who aren't. That's what Jesus is saying. I thought they knew you, God. I thought they had a relationship with you. 
They went to church every week. They were in my Bible study. He was my pastor. <laughs> but he never knew you. He never knew you. You see, that, this, this passage teaches us just what we're learning in the book of Revelation with Sardis. That we can, we can do, and this might not be the right word, we can do spiritually seeming things without having the Spirit. It's dangerous stuff. I mean, it's good stuff. We, we need to talk about this. Because this is stuff that we need, to, we need to wrestle with. We need to come up and we need to be confronted with this truth. And we need to wrestle through this. Because I'm telling you, folks, I, I, this is one of those verses and one of those passages that it just burdens my heart. You know, when I, when I like, say, speak on Sunday to a church the size of Cornerstone, where there's 3,000 people there on Sunday... You've got to believe that one of the burdens on my heart is that I'm speaking to people who may be thinking that they're okay with God. And they're not okay with God. And that, that's, sometimes that's a burden that's very hard to bear. And I realize I can't necessarily change that, but I'm hoping and praying that God will take His Word and through His Spirit will open up that light bulb and get them to see I'm not as... And again, I'll, I'll use this word. I'm not as secure as I thought I was. I thought I was on my way to heaven. I thought I had a relationship with God. But again, you see, folks, it goes back to what the Bible clearly teaches us throughout the Bible. It's, it's a relationship. It's a relationship. And some people will go through their whole life, and they'll come to even a church like Cornerstone where we preach and teach that. It's a relationship with Jesus. And they don't, they don't get it. They are so steeped into it's a religion and it's following a set of rules and it's doing this and it's, it's, my, it's my do's and my don'ts list and it's that and it's this. And it's, no, 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 it's a relationship. And if, if I have the relationship, then all those other things will take care of themselves. If I have the relationship with Christ and I allow the Spirit of God to energize me and I allow His Word to illuminate me, I'll be, I'll be doing the right things and I'll be staying away from the bad things. But the relationship has to come first. Everything has to be born out of the relationship, not the other way around. And that's why this passage is so huge. And that's what causes confusion in the body of Christ. And that's what causes confuses in the church. That's what causes problems. Because there's going to be a lot of people who people like you and I are going to be like, you mean they never knew you? And yeah, I'm talking pastors. I had a just to share with you, and then I'll open it up for comments real quick, because we're done, Sardis. We'll start, on, we'll start on Philadelphia next week. And let me just, I know I like to sell it, but come back next week. Philadelphia, the city of brotherly shove, not love. Okay? But I'm telling you, the next two messages, Philadelphia and Laodicea, powerful, powerful, powerful stuff. We, I, I, want you to, I want you to share in it with me, because it's good stuff, but... It, it is very sobering to think that, oh, that's what I was going to tell you. There was a, a fellow that I knew. I, I didn't know him very, very well, but he pastored a church. Get this now. He pastored a church for 20 years. God brought me into his life, and as God brought me into his life, I realized in talking to this man that he was a pastor, but he didn't know God. 
You say, well, how did he preach? Well, like a lot of these guys do who don't know God and <clears throat> preach. They get their messages sent to them. They do. If, if you, and you guys might not know this, obviously, because you're not. There, there have always been those agencies and places out there where, you know, you can send away for sermons. And they will send you sermons to, to speak. So you're not, you're not really sharing from your heart what God is doing in your life based upon your own study of the Word of God. You're just sort of parroting what somebody else read and studied and whatever, and you're just sharing that with your people. And so that's how that can happen. It's, it's not that they're speaking from a real walk with God. It's that they're speaking somebody else's words. Sermons are us. Yeah, sermons are us. And, no, there's websites where... You could click on. Now let me just say this, and then I'm gonna I'm gonna finish the story here. I want you guys to know that you guys have two really special guys here in Lynn and Ron that live it and it's real to them. And that's just really neat. They're not up there sharing, you know, what somebody else sent them. They're sharing what God's doing in their heart to you guys, and we're just so thankful to have two guys like that that share the word on a regular basis here at Cornerstone. But anyway, to, to finish the story, I digress so much. <laughs> I apologize. No, don't. So, to make a long story short, he gets up. After pastoring this church for 20 years, he gets up the next Sunday, and with tears streaming down his cheeks, he informs his congregation that he just accepted Christ as his Savior. And that for the last 20 years, he didn't know the Lord. Talk about a bombshell. Now, I'm not going to go into all that, how that all went. Obviously, he, you know, it, it worked out. But it just, this is what it's saying, folks. It's a relationship. It's, it's a relationship. I just can't emphasize that enough. It's not religion. It's not church. It's not a set of rules. It's not a set of do's and don'ts. It's a living, vibrant relationship with the living God that he wants to have with you. He wants that so bad, and yet there are these people that want to substitute all these other things in place of that relationship. And what Jesus is saying is, relationship comes, then all those other things will take care of themselves. And so the you know guys, if we don't take anything else out of this room tonight, here's what we can take. That you and I just need to commit ourselves as we leave here to just building that relationship with them. And making sure we have a relationship. You know one of those things that I would hate to get to heaven someday and not see somebody from the mine up there. That would that'd be hard. I hope all of you really, truly know the Lord and that there's nobody in this room that would fit that category. God, I, I thought I knew you, but I never really had a personal relationship. Yeah, a few minutes here for questions. Yeah. The, uh, besides scaring the heck out of a lot of us here, uh, you know, our church... You're not what, going. Yeah, <laughs> that's what I'm seriously worried about. You're not going. But uh, the, you know, our pastor taught... You know, how can you teach that if you can teach that, well, if I go to the hospital and the guy accepts Jesus on, with his dying breath, he's going to heaven. 
But we confess that we know Jesus, you know, and have, you know, followed his word as best we can. We know what sin is. I mean, we're all sinners. Right. And we've been taught that as soon as you accept, you know, your name is written in the book, and that's it. Right. Now, I thought you even said that with, you know, right. in Romans and right. so forth. So where am I going Good. wrong here? Okay, well, that's a great question. Because I'm not going to sleep well. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> Guess my pink slip's in the mail tomorrow. No. Uh, There's another book. <laughs> no. My answer to that would be that, for instance, when I do a funeral of somebody who, say, gave a deathbed confession, I preface it by saying this. I don't know. They gave a profession of faith in Christ. But only God knows whether they truly are saved or not. So I don't like to... I don't like to go that next step that maybe some are comfortable with and say, oh, I know you're saved, I know you're saved, I know I'm... You know, I feel like I can speak for myself. Because the Bible clearly says in Romans... The Spirit Himself witnesses with our spirit that we are the children of God. So in other words, if I truly am a Christian, the Spirit of God is going to confirm that to me. That's part of that assurance. That's why Paul says the Holy Spirit is that seal of our redemption, that we are sealed with the Holy Spirit until the day we see Christ. So the Holy Spirit is going to witness with us. Yes, you are a child of God. Now that doesn't mean that at times in our walk with God, we're not going to have doubts. Going back to my message on Sunday... But those doubts creep in, sometimes because of circumstances, sometimes because of sin, whatever, where our faith is shaken. But the Bible clearly says that the Holy Spirit will witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. So I'll, I know whether I'm a Christian or not. But to say that I can unequivocally say that you're a Christian or not, I think that would be taking a step too far. Because only God knows the hearts of every human being. And that's where that passage comes in. Now, I think that there are those of us who can manifest the fruit. And like there, you know, for all practical purposes, I can say, well, I'm pretty sure you're a Christian. But see, that's why the Bible says, in a sense, we have to be very careful that we don't set ourselves up as the judge and jury of, of people's souls, because only God can really be that judge and jury. We can't be, because as a human being, we're only seeing certain aspects of it where God sees it all and sees into the heart. But that's no, that's a good good yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I knew it was sincere and genuine. Exactly. Yes. Yeah, just the tail end of, of verse five, though. It says, "You know, uh, shall never erase your name from the book of life, but I will announce before the, my Father and His angels that they are mine." Right. As opposed to ours, I, it see it just gets very possessive all of a sudden. That and I guess. With Christ? Yeah. Well, the Bible teaches that, in a sense, God the Father's love gift to Jesus Christ is going to be the church. That's why Jesus is portrayed as the bridegroom and the church as the bride. The Father in the Bible, because Christ was willing to come and to die for the church and be the sacrifice, the Bible clearly teaches that that's why they're His, because God the Father sort of gives the church to the Son as a love gift from Him. Yes. Good, good. So, so whether you've had a long-term relationship with Jesus or not, in a split second, your willingness your, in your heart to have that is what mattered. Yes. Yeah. When you're born again, your whole personality changes. You know, you know you've changed. 
Right. No doubt. You can see the evidence no of God in your life. No, no. Yeah. And, and again, it's not that there aren't maybe some times in your life where doubt creeps in, but, but all I'm saying is, yeah, the, the Bible clearly teaches that the Holy Spirit will witness with your spirit that you are a child of God. Because God doesn't want you to be unsure of your eternal destiny the whole time you're here on earth. Because if you have to concentrate on whether you're saved or not or going to heaven, that's going to take energy away from doing other things that he wants you to do. That's why John said, these things were written that you may know that you have eternal life. It doesn't mean you may come to know in the future someday when you finally get there. The, the, the tense of that word in John is that you know right now. And like I always say too, if you point people to like First Peter, where Peter says you have an inheritance waiting on you already. It's already up there. It's reserved for you. Is God going to make this inheritance for me and then I lose it and then he's got to give it to somebody else or throw it away or whatever? No, the Bible says that I have an inheritance that's reserved for me and Peter goes on to say, and I'm reserved for it. I'm kept for it just like it's kept for me. That's where I believe the Bible clearly does teach eternal security. Now, I will say this. Based upon what other people said, the Bible does clearly teach. Paul says, make your calling and election sure. Hey, it doesn't hurt every once in a while for a Christian to go through a healthy check to make sure. There's nothing wrong with that. And it's not so much putting fear and, and wanting you to have a sleepless night. But you know what? To me, if I have to stay up for a couple hours and sort of wrestle with through, through that again, and then, okay, yeah, I definitely know that I know God. To me, compared to eternity, it was worth those couple of hours of <laughs> lack of sleep to make sure. Yes, sir? Well, i got two friends, one last week, one about a year ago. One was LDS. The day before the death, when the death said, asked for the chaplain to come in, wanted to accept the Lord as their personal Savior. I'm just going, that's great. I mean, you're really excited, but why did you wait so long? If you really knew you had to accept it, why did you wait till you were dying to do it when you could have done so many, you know, right. witnessed so many people brought to your family? Oh, yeah. But so many people wait until the day of their death, the day, the day before their death, is now I want Jesus to Right, right. I, I don't understand that. Can yeah, you, you know, I, I think it's one of those things that sometimes the circumstances of life come to bear, whether it's death or a, a serious illness or whatever, where we begin to think about, really, do we have that relationship? You know, eternal things over, a lot of times we're so fogged by the temporal things, and, and we're, we're so sort of focused on this life and what we're doing in this life just to get by that, that we're not really focused on eternity. But yeah, it's a good good. Well, one was, you know, in, in Bishop, in a, in a Mormon church. Yeah. But you know when the time come, he had to accept Jesus Christ to get to heaven. Right. Well, like I said, there, there's Baptist pastors who get saved, you know, after <laughs> preaching. So, yes, sir. You didn't want to have it sad after you got saved. How Good question. And I'm going to answer this, and then I'll let you go. How do you gauge, yes, how do you gauge how deep you are in your relationship with Christ? That is an excellent, excellent, excellent question. I, I would say the quick answer to that, because that there's, there's a lot of facets to that. I would say the quick answer to how you and I are growing in Christ is how much of Christ is being reflected in me and through me. Okay, Because ultimately, the goal, again, and we've said this before, the goal of salvation is not that ticket to heaven, the forgiveness of sins. 
the goal of salvation, according to Romans 8.29, is to become more like Jesus Christ. Paul says, our goal of our salvation is to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. So in other words, the more I look like Christ to others, the more I act like Christ did to others, the more I speak like Christ would to others, the more I allow the life of Christ and all that Christ was to be embodied in me and take over me, the more I'm growing like Christ. That, that's the sort of the simple answer. Now, how does that take place? How, how? As newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow. So our primarily means of growth is through our relationship with the word of God, but then the spirit of God takes the word of God to help us become more like the son of God. Hey guys, Woo. great class. Amen. You guys are awesome. Yeah. You're awesome. Yeah. Yeah, you're awesome. Ooh, man. All right, let's close in prayer. Father, thank you so much for your word and your son and this group. And Father, just again, we just pray you would just clothe us with your grace and your mercy and your strength and just... Help us all as we wrestle with these issues to come to terms with them, Lord, in your time and, and, and with your help. And, Father, we just are so excited to see so many who are so hungry to want to know the truth and live the truth and, and be the truth to others. Lord, just take us from here tonight, we pray, refreshed and, and just ready to be all that you've created us to be. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, guys.